Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings and welcome back to the New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel. I'm your host, James Stansel, and today I'm talking with the University of Connecticut professor, Martha J. Cutter, and we're going to discuss her book, The Illustrated Slave, Empathy, Graphic Narrative, and the Visual Culture of the Transatlantic Abolition Movement, 1800 to 1852. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. This is an area and a topic of research that you really don't hear as much about. So enjoy. How are you doing today, Martha? Excellent. Good. So nice for you to uh, to be on our program today. And if you don't mind, maybe can you give us a little information about your background and why you're interested in this particular topic? Sure. I have been very interested in another topic on racial passing, um, which is to say mainly in my work, African-Americans who are light skinned who pass for white. And while working on projects having to do with racial passing, I came across this very interesting man named Moses Roper, who escaped from slavery in the United States in 1834, and he wrote his own narrative about his escape in 1837. And Moses Roper could pass for white, and he used that in his escape and escape and, and take on different disguises. But he also, in his slave narrative, had illustrations, uh, five of them, including a very interesting picture of himself. And I thought this was very interesting because prior to Uncle Tom's Cabin, people don't talk about much about illustrated anti-slavery books. And so most people who study American literature know that Uncle Tom's Cabin had illustrations, and those illustrations took off. Um, But I thought it was really interesting that Moses Roper's text was also an illustrated book 20 years earlier, and it didn't, nobody really was talking about the illustrations in his text. So I started looking around for other illustrated anti-slavery books prior to Uncle Tom's Cabin, which came out in 1852, and I found a bunch of them. And I thought they were really fascinating. And also, I thought that their approach to depicting people who were enslaved was different than what we saw in Uncle Tom's Cabin. Mainly, from what I could tell, they pictured the enslaved as not necessarily abject, not necessarily an object of pity that a white viewer would say, oh, I have to help. I have to pity this person. But more of making a demand for an equal kind of relationship with a white viewer or any other kind of viewer for that matter of saying, I am enslaved. I have a kind of agency. You still need to say slavery is wrong and work as an abolitionist, but they don't create a structure in which the enslaved are always kind of looked down upon. So they're working for a more towards a more active and radical notion of how a viewer should look at these enslaved individuals. So that's how I got interested in the project. And I started looking around, like I said, for other anti-slavery illustrated books. And I also got interested in the general way in which individuals were depicted in visual culture of the United States and England um, in the early time period and how these books complicate that um, imaging of the enslaved uh, just to give you one quick example, one of the one of the books that I think 
a pamphlet that's fairly interesting um, has on its cover an enslaved person who's broken out of his chains and he's standing up and he says, I am a man, your brother, as opposed to typically we see this slave down on his knees and many imagings uh, praying and saying to the white viewer, am I not a man and a brother? And that's kind of typical portraying the enslaved person as abject and in need of pity versus I am a man, your brother. And in that illustration, the enslaved individual has broken his chains himself and he's standing up and looking directly at the viewer. So a more radical way of thinking about the relationship between the enslaved and the viewer and between enslaved individuals and abolitionists who might be wanting to help them is what I got interested in initially with this book. Wow, that's a very interesting topic. And, you know, when I saw um, your book and it's just recently been published, I really wanted to have you on the show to talk about this topic, because as you mentioned, Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, many of us know about that. We learned about it in history, but we don't really hear about those earlier slave tales, particularly the illustrated ones that that you feature in this book. And there's so many great pictures and images, you know, in your book here. So thank you so much for you know, really going out and doing that research and and really connecting wider audiences with this work. And speaking of those those images and that, that, that research that you did, can you maybe explain to us and tell us what type of process that you went through, research methods you used to investigate and do the research for this book? And about how long did it take for you to complete this work? Um, this book, I think, took about three or four years, which is relatively fast by academic standards. And um, I think because there hasn't been a huge amount of study in this area, it made it a little bit faster process. There are some great books, like by Marcus Wood, for example, has a great book, uh, several great books on slavery and visual culture and visual the way the slaves slaves were. Yeah portrayed, but he doesn't look specifically at the genre of the illustrated books where you have um, illustrations, but also narrative that tries to convey a message by kind of wrapping itself around the pictures. So, um, yeah, so the book took about, I would say, three or four years. And my process after realizing that there was this body of material um, out there was to um, look on databases online, but also I went to several archives, like um, the Library Company of Philadelphia has a great archive of early uh, illustrated books. I went to the Athenaeum in Worcester, Massachusetts. I went to New York Public Library. I I actually ended up doing some research in Toronto as well um, on the the guy, the guy I became quite fascinated with, Henry Box Brown. I can say more about it in a bit, but um, so I ended up doing some research outside the country too, um, and I looked for I looked for illustrated books that I thought used their illustrations in a really interesting way to provoke an empathy which was equalizing of the enslaved person rather than pity or sympathy, kind of saying, oh, let's pity these, let's cry for these people, but in a kind of a structure where the person was portrayed as like the viewer, as parallel to the viewer, not necessarily something to be looked down on. So um, so that was my, my process was like reading as many of these as I could, getting my hands on them. Going to see them physically was really important because sometimes there's differences when you look at them physically, the size. For example, you don't necessarily know that when you look at a book online. One of the books I looked at, it seemed like people had touched the illustration. So there was, that was something interesting there, like that there's something tactile that people wanted to put their hands on books. Um, 
I found some really interesting things with Henry Bibb's edition. Like it had, I didn't know this, it had this really interesting cover, which was red with a picture of Bibb and his wife and child on it. And so that was, that that became a really interesting part of my book. So things, I think the archives are important for physically seeing the books and seeing their size. And sometimes there were differences between the different editions, which were really interesting to, to look at too, and, and that are meaningful. Um, and tell you a little bit about the process the author went through in getting to his final version, his or her final version of the text. Um, you know, you could see sometimes with some of them, the books that they were adding illustrations, adding more and more. They were placing them differently. They were revising them. So it's, it was a process, I think, of creating these books. So, yeah, and uh, my process was, I think, you know, after looking at the archives and trying to figure out what was out there, to pick the most interesting books for my argument and for what I was saying about non-abject representation of the enslaved, and then to kind of come up with a theory about what that meant. And I, I'm, probably that's the longest process for me was like, how do I want to theorize that? I do end up using some of the research on empathy, which is quite fascinating, but I also use some graphic novel theory because I'm very interested in the relationship between words and pictures and how that pulls a reader into a book. And graphic narrative theory, graphic novel theory is really helpful there. And also some visual theories, theories about how an argument is made by a visual text. Because it's not always the same as the way an argument is made by a plain text written in language. Like how do the images pull you in and then maybe the narrative completes the argument that is being made or sometimes vice versa. So I think the hardest part was probably coming up the appropriate theoretical approach to all this really interesting material. Absolutely. And when we're talking about a book and talking about topics that relate to visuals so much, of course, I have to ask you about this cover that you have for the book, Martha J. Cutter. So can you maybe tell us about you know, what this cover is all about, what it means, and was this a cover that you chose or was it chosen by the publisher? I, p- I picked the cover the illustration in the center, which is an illustration of uh, from it actually is an illustration based on Uncle Tom's cabin of one of the central characters, Eliza, fleeing from slavery and carrying her child as she runs across the Ohio River uh, on these chunks of ice. And this was a very famous and um, uh, popular illustration in the 19th century. Uh, one of the reasons I picked it is because the illustrations that actually, this is not actually from the 1852 edition of Uncle Tom's Cabin, but um, it, it, it's an illustration that came after. And the illustrations in Uncle Tom's Cabin, I would not say show quite so heroic of an individual um, as this particular illustration. I liked it because she seems very active in the illustration. Uh, she has her child in her arms, but she's running. She's trying to escape. Um, and then on the book cover, we also put, because this book is also about print culture, so we also put some actual newspaper prints around it um, to kind of embed the idea of the illustrated book. It doesn't exist on its own. It's also a part of print culture and of things that are being written in newspapers, almanacs, um, there are broadsides, uh, all different kinds of representations of enslavement. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I like the cover because it's more of a heroic image and more fits with what I'm trying to say, even though I have some problems with Uncle Tom's Cabin itself. But sure, sure. We, we can talk about that. <laughs> yes, we can. And, yes, it's a great cover, and I think it's, it's very representative. And for people who are more, you know, general audiences, covers and visuals, as you know, Martha J. Cutter's, you know, very attractive to them and it's very important. And 
If you'd like to see the cover image here that we're talking about, of course, you can go to our blog page on New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel, and you can see this image and you can see the nice write-up I have about Martha J. Cutter and her work and her background. And you can also click through and purchase the book from our bookselling partner online. So all that information is available there to you. And I'm sure Martha J. Cutter would not mind at all if you purchase a copy of The Illustrated oh, Slave. Yes, definitely purchase it. <laughs> it's a wonderful gift. It's, this, is, this is a very well-researched book and well-done well book. And I think that many people will be interested in this topic and, and want to read about it. And if I could just uh, butt in a little bit here. I sure. think also... What I'm thinking about more broadly beyond this particular time period is to what extent the enslaved have been represented as abject, as in need of uh, the viewer's pity, and to what extent there are alternative texts out there, mm. uh, visual texts that we can look at for different kind of portrayal of the enslaved. And I'm fascinated by the fact that we seem to be in a moment where portrayals of slavery are uh, coming back into um, cultural circulation. We have the remake of Roots pretty recently. Uh, we have movies like Django Unchained and 12 Years a Slave and Birth of a Nation about Nat Turner and even Get Out, which many people read as a, as a neo-slave narrative, as a slave revolt narrative. So these questions about how do we represent enslavement and what is the most effective way to get a person to understand this past um, and to view the enslaved person as um, not necessarily in need of pity um, are still with us. And I think we have sometimes in these movies, like, uh, for example, Django Unchained, we have the idea of the white savior coming up, um, that the enslaved person needs a white person to help them escape. Now, some of the people I look at in my book who were slaves escaped on their own. Um, they didn't necessarily need the help of a white person. And I'm not trying to devalue the fact that some slaves did need the help of a white person, but we often tend to think of, oh, the Underground Railroad, they needed the help of a white person. But there, there's other kinds of ways in which people escaped where they took a great deal of control over their own escape. And so, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting with contemporary movies how often we fall, there seems to be a falling back on this notion of the white rescuer. And, you know, that, that isn't really historically true always. So I'm interested in complicating the idea as well with contemporary culturalists. And the, particularly in the last few chapters of the book, I talk about the fact that there are ways in which the enslaved can be represented that don't fall back on representing them as having no control over their lives and just needing the white person to come in and help them. Right. So I think there's a lot going on today with the representation of slavery. We also have great novels. Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad novel is fascinating. And I, I kind of wish I could have, I think that came out after I finished this book, but I would have loved to include a little bit about that towards the end of my book, although it doesn't, it's not a visual text, but it has a great scene at the end where the character is digging her way out of slavery on her own. And that kind of fits with what I'm saying, that in the end, sometimes it just comes down to what can you do on your own and can you take control of your destiny um, rather than waiting for somebody to help you out. Absolutely. And I agree, Martha J. Cutter, that your book is very timely, you know, in the 21st century based on the type of films that are out there now. And just many of the events and things that have have taken place yeah. in, in in recent years. So definitely timely. And, you know, I'm glad this book came out at this time. So on that note, if you don't mind, maybe can you give us a little preview or tell us some of the important ideals that people can expect to see 
or read if they pick up a copy of your book? Sure. I'm going to talk briefly about two um, two individuals who I find most fascinating. One is uh, Henry Box Brown, who I already mentioned, who mailed himself in a postal crate from the south to the north in order to escape from slavery in 1849. And um, he, you know, he didn't entirely do this on his own. He did raise some of the money um, that he would need to do this by his work as, uh, as I think, a carpenter. And then um, he had one, he had people in the north who were from part of the Underground Railroad to receive him. But he actually worked with a free black man in the south who would help him purchase the box and do other things. So he mailed himself in this box from the south to the north, and he was successful. It took about 36 hours for his box to arrive. Um, it was a grueling journey. The box was turned upside down on his head. Um, and then he wrote a book about his escape. So I talk about his book. Um, and the book has some images of him popping out of his box, which are really interesting. And he then went on to create this panorama of his escape and to exhibit it around the United States. So the panorama was this huge painted scroll of images and he would carry this around and he would kind of perform his escape again and also uh, depict other scenes of enslavement. He traveled around the United States performing um, his own escape. He would also sometimes pop out of his box again. So you can kind of see where he starts to play with the symbols of enslavement and to kind of create a show out of them. Um, he had to flee to England because of the fugitive slave law and he was almost recaptured in a couple of different instances. So he got out of the country. He went to England where he continued to perform his show uh, of his escape, the panorama, but he also became a magician and a mesmerist, and he performed with his wife and child in a variety of different shows, his daughter Annie. He married a woman in England, and uh, he performed with them in various kinds of shows, so he was a real showman. He sort of made of his life a performance that was really interesting, and I'm fascinated by the fact that he was probably mesmerizing um both um, black people, but also white people, and putting them under his control, which would, if you think about for somebody who had been a slave, is really fascinating, because now he's in the palm of his hand, who, are, who, are, who controlled him once, in a way, um, and he's using his box in his performances. So he's a really interesting figure for how he takes control not only of his own escape, but also of the symbols of enslavement, the chains, the box, the space of enslavement itself, and he manipulates it. Um, he eventually comes back to the United States, and then this is why I ended up in Toronto. He, I found that he died in Toronto um, uh, eventually, and he was still performing, as far as we know, well into the last decade of his life, well into his 80s as a singer um, in various kinds of uh, performances. So he fascinates me, and there's a good bit of the book about him, and I think he functions in a way as an alternative to Uncle Tom's cabin and to Uncle Tom himself, who I think Uncle Tom is portrayed in a fairly flat way. He does, you know, stand up. He won't whip other slaves, and he stands up for himself in that sense, but essentially he allows himself to be beaten to death. He never once thinks about escaping, and you can see that Brown, Henry Rocks Brown, was kind of constantly trying to escape all his life from different kinds of spaces, kind of performing in this magical way. So um, he, Henry Rocks Brown is a, is a really interesting figure in the book. And then I'll also highlight Henry Bibb, who is an individual who, again, escaped from slavery, I believe in 1849, um, and he escaped on his own. And he uh, didn't need the help of anyone. His narrative, which was published in 1849, 
has a lot of illustrations in it, a ton of illustrations in it, and they've been handled in a fairly negative way. But I talk about in my book how he's, some of these illustrations come from other places and how, again, he's playing around with the representation of enslavement. Like sometimes he'll take an illustration and just place it sideways on a page, which is really fascinating. And he also has a very interesting image of himself at the beginning of his book, um, and it's the portrait of him, which is very dignified. And below that, he has a kind of cartoon fleeing figure that says, stop Henry Bibb, where is he? But Henry Bibb turned the corner too fast and escaped. So he's playing around with the fugitive slave advertisements for runaway slaves, which are like, you know, run away. And he's kind of mocking them, stop the runaway, where is he? But Bibb turned the corner too fast and he escaped. Sort of implying that he himself was never caught within this sort of matrix of the runaway slave. And there's a lot of debate about this, um, to what extent you could ever be truly free in American culture because of the fact that the fugitive slaves still existed, but also that former slaves were kind of confined to that space of enslavement. They were always former slaves. We, we talk about Frederick Douglass as an, an ex-slave. So where is a space of freedom? And I think maybe Bib is saying there, there isn't necessarily a space of freedom, but you can play with this enslavement. You can kind of blow it up and make fun of it. Um, and so those are those were uh, the kind of stories that really fascinated me of these really vibrant and vivid people who had such interesting lives and did so many performances, different kinds of performances. And yet, if I say to most people, hey, what do you think about Henry Box Brown? We'll say, who are you talking about? But they know who Uncle Tom is. And as a matter of fact, they usually know who Topsy is. So they might even know who Simon Legree is. Oftentimes, Simon Legree comes up like Jeopardy, like it's a category. But you never see like, oh, who was a slave who escaped from slavery by mailing himself from um, in a box from the south to the north? You never see that. And it's such a great story. And I'm like, why do we not have that as our image of slavery and freedom versus Uncle Tom? All great questions. And we're going to begin to perhaps have those stories be told more because of books like yours, Martha J. I hope so. <laughs> so kudos to you in, in that regard. Thank you so much for sharing those couple of details of things that you really liked about the book, because I'm sure if you really liked researching them, we'll really like reading them as well. And, you know, and many people have heard about Henry Box Brown, but they may not know the details yeah. of his later life and oh. things that you um, wrote about there, Martha. And maybe can you tell us uh, if people are interested in um, getting in contact with you or asking questions or, or maybe finding out more about your work, is there a way that people can reach sure. you? Sure. The best way they can reach me is by email. And my email is martha.cutter, C-U-T-T-E-R, at UConn, U-C-O-N-N dot E-D-U. And if you... If you can't find my, if you forget my email, just Google Martha Cutter. I think I'm one of the few Martha Cutters in the country. For some reason, my name is rather uncommon for some reason, and you all come up. Um, and um, I'm also on Twitter, and, um, you know, I, I don't always check my messages there, but you can definitely send me a tweet. I believe I'm at Martha Cutter. I just use my name. And um, so those are good ways to reach me if you're interested in, in the book. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sh for sharing that, because, you know, some of our, our listeners, sometimes they really get into some of these subjects or topics. And of course, they may also have some information that can help oh, yeah. you in your further research, yeah. you know, you know, depending on their personal stories or their, their backgrounds or their location. I'm still thinking so, there's going to be a Henry Box Brown relative out there who 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 talks to me. 
um, at some point, and I did do a lot of work on ancestry, and I've been in touch with a number of the other scholars, and um, one of them said that he got a phone message at some point when he was giving a talk that a relative of Henry Vox Brown wanted to speak to him, and then he the, the phone number wasn't valid. So he's not sure if it was, so, but I mean, Henry Brooks Brown, he performed for a long time, and his daughter performed with him. And we also know that he lived in the United States for a number of years. He lived in Canada for a number of years. Um, and his granddaughter also seems to have been a performer. And so there's three generations of African-American artistry there, maybe more. And I feel like the family tree there has to be some, I, I just feel like there's more material out there about Henry Box Brown. And if anybody has, you know, stories or knows anything, has heard anything, I would love to be contacted. So hopefully everyone so heard that. It's going to turn up, you know, it, it will turn right. up because he had, you know, he had children and grandchildren. And there was a, there was a male descent line too. And uh, the thing is that, you know, you can find stuff about Henry Box Brown because he did go by box. Like he incorporated them to his name, but then his children didn't. So they just became like, you know, William Brown or whatever, or James Brown or whatever. So that, that's a little harder to trace because the name's less common. But I feel like there's somebody out there. I feel like there's relatives out there. So if you're that relative that Martha's looking oh, yeah. for, definitely get in contact with her on, on Twitter or send her an email message at University of Connecticut. Any relatives out there of Henry Box Brown or any of the other folk that she mentioned, you know, in her outstanding book there. Who knows? You may be in a future Martha J. Cutter publication, yeah. right? Yep. And same thing with Moses Roper um, and um, his his relatives. He we do sort of know a little bit more about his relatives, um, but I don't think so far we've been able. I, I do think there might be some relatives of him in England who claim to be from his descent line. But as far as the United States, I mean, he came back to the United States, so he may, he probably has relatives here too. I don't want to hold you all day, Martha J. Cutter, because I know that you are an important professor there at University of Connecticut. You probably got some academic things to do as as well. But if you don't mind, could you share with us some of your future projects or the things you may have in the pipeline or other places or other works that you may want to point our audience to if they're interested in finding out more things about you? Mm -hmm. um, sure. I, I have a book that's coming out with it. Again, with the University of Georgia Press in um, April of 2018, it's a it's actually an edited collection of essays, and it's called Redrawing the Historical Past, and it's on multi-ethnic graphic novels. And there are some really interesting. I have an essay in there about incognito. There's some really interesting um, uh, stuff about um, civil rights graphic novels. Um, so that is a is a good. I'm editing that with a colleague of mine, Kathy Schlund Biles, and um, I don't, there's about 12 or 14 essays in that. So if you're interested in graphic novels and the historical past and race, that that would be a really good book to look for. And then as far as my own projects, I do want to work on a book that would have something to do with slavery as spectacle. And the way, as I'm alluding to with Henry Box Brown and Henry Bibb, certain individuals were able to play with the spectacle, the visual spectacle that was slavery, and to turn it around and to poke holes in it and to use it for their own profit sometimes, sometimes for their own, I would say, psychological liberation by sometimes mocking it, hollowing out, turning it into a spectacle which they had control over. So Sojourner Truth famously sold photographs of herself that said, I sell the substance, I sell the shadow to support the substance. 
So kind of playing around, like you can buy this image of me. I sell the shadow. This is the shadow just to support the substance, the real me. You're not getting the real me. So um, in that book, I would hopefully look at people like Carol Walker and Glenn Legon, which I do a little bit with in my current book, um, people who are visual artists who have these really interesting representations of enslavement. Wilmer Wilson, for is another performance artist who does stuff with Henry Box Brown. Um, so thinking about the way we normally think of spectacle as a bad thing, like, oh, he's making a spectacle of himself. But in a culture in which the enslaved were supposed to stay in their place uh, and be what white people thought they should be, the notion of spectacle as something that becomes subversive, transformative, is really interesting to me, like how they could manipulate the spectacle for their own personal usage, um, not necessarily escape it, but manipulate it. So I think I'll be working on a book called something like Slavery as Spectacle in the near future. Both of those projects sound like some great ones and some interesting ones to me. And I hope that we can get a commitment from you right now that you'll come back on the African-American Studies channel to have another conversation with us for both of those. Oh, sure. I'd love to. The, one, the slavery spectacle one is just like in my head right now. <laughs> yeah, that's Because I've written a couple of things for people about just various things. Uh, like I have one on um, political, anti-slavery political cartoons. And I'm like, I could put this in the book on slavery as spectacle. So, but yeah, I, I have to come up with a stronger, uh, like, organization for that book soon that or the redrawing the historical past which will be out in april right but don't worry whenever you're ready for that slavery as spectacle we'll be right here for you on the new books network martha j cutter don't worry about that and we look forward to talking with you about your edited work that'll be coming out in the spring as as well well thank you so much for your time martha j cutter you know i know it's a mid semester here and you've probably got lots of uh, grading and research and those kinds of things that you that you have to do. But, you know, thank you so much for spending time with us on the New Books Network. And if you could just say goodbye to our audience, that would be yeah. awesome. Well, thank you, James, for inviting me. This was really fun. And, and it's, it's always pleasure. exciting to talk about my work. And um, I'm, I'm very happy to talk about it anywhere and time. If anybody wants me <laughs> for a talk, I'm happy to do that. I have very, I, my, my rate is very low. <laughs> but, yeah, thank you, thank you for um, inviting me to do this. It was a lot of fun. And uh, I'll say goodbye. Again, thank you so much, Martha J. Cutting. You heard her, everyone. Her rate is very low, so she she she, she will travel and, and come and speak with you about the illustrated slave and many of the other outstanding topics that she's expert on. So again, thank you everyone for listening. And again, the book is The Illustrated Slave: Empathy, Graphic Narrative, and the Visual Culture of the Transatlantic Abolition Movement, 1800 to 1850, and it's published by the University of Georgia Press. You can click through and purchase it off of our blog page on the New Books Network. So thank you everyone so much for listening and I look forward to presenting more great authors to you in the future. Take care. Goodbye. Thank you so much to Martha J. Cutter for taking some time out of her busy schedule to talk with us today about her book, The Illustrated Slave, Empathy, Graphic Narrative, and the Visual Culture of the Transatlantic Abolition Movement, 1800 to 1852, published by the University of Georgia Press. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the interview. See you next time.